for, Stan, and the inn is quiet and homelike. You may go to bed when you are tired, get up when you choose, and eat when you are hungry. There were no visitors about when I arrived, and I thought I would have the coffee room all to myself at luncheon time, but presently there came in a pleasant-faced old gentleman in knickerbockers. He bowed to me and then took a place at the table. He said that it was a fine day and I agreed with him, adding that the mountains were very beautiful. He assented, putting in a codicil to the effect that the lake was very pretty. Then the waiter came for our orders. Together, I suppose, remarked Thomas, inquiringly, as he halted at the door and balanced the tray on his fingertips. Yes, serve lunch for us together, said the ruddy old gentleman as he looked at me and smiled. To eat alone is bad for the digestion. I nodded assent. Can you tell me how far it is to Brantwood? I asked. Oh, not far just across the lake. He arose and flung the shutter open so I could see the old, yellow house about a mile across the water, nestling in its wealth of green on the hillside. Soon the waiter brought our lunch, and while we discussed the chops and new potatoes we talked Ruskiniana. The old gentleman knew a deal more of stones of Venice and modern painters than I, but I told him how Thoreau introduced Ruskin to America and how Concord was the first place in the New World to recognize this star in the East. And upon my saying this, the old gentleman brought his knife handle down on the table, declaring that Thoreau and Whitman were the only two men of genius that America had produced. I begged him to make it three and include Emerson, which he finally consented to do. By and by the waiter cleared the table preparatory to bringing in the coffee. The old gentleman pushed his chair back, took the napkin from under his double chin, brushed the crumbs from his goodly front, and remarked, I'm going over to Brantwood this afternoon to call on Mr. Ruskin just to pay my respects to him, as I always do when I come here. Can't you go with me? I think this was about the most pleasing question I ever had asked me. I was going to request him to come again just for the joy of hearing the words, but I pulled my dignity together, straightened up, swallowed my coffee red hot, pushed my chair back, flourished my napkin, and said, I shall be very pleased to go. So we went we to he in his knickerbockers and I in my checks and out in shirt. I congratulated myself on looking no worse than he, and as for him. He never seemed to think that our costumes were not exactly what they should be, and after all it matters little how you dress when you call on one of nature's noblemen they demand no livery. We walked around the northern end of Coniston Water, along the eastern edge, past Tent House, where Tennyson once lived and found it outrageous quiet. And a mile farther on we came to Brantwood, the road curves into the back of the house which, by the way, is the front and the driveway is lined with great trees that form a complete archway. There is no lodge keeper, no flower beds laid out with square and compass, no trees trimmed to appear like elephants, no cast iron dogs, nor terracotta deer, and, strangest of all, no sign of the lawn mower. There is nothing, in fact, to give forth the sign that the great apostle of beauty lives in this very old-fashioned spot. Big boulders are to be seen here and there where nature left them. Tangles of vines running over old stumps, part of the meadow cut close with a scythe, and part growing up as if the owner knew the price of hay. Then there are flower beds, where grow clusters of poppies and hollyhocks purple, and scarlet, and white, prosaic gooseberry bushes, plain Yankee pie plant from which the English make charts, rue and sweet marjoram, with patches of fennel, sage, thyme and catnip, all lined off with boxwood, 
making me think of my grandmother's garden at Roxbury. On the hillside above the garden we saw the entrance to the cave that Mr. Ruskin once filled with ice, just to show the world how to keep its head cool at small expense. He even wrote a letter to the papers giving the bright idea to humanity that the way to utilize caves was to fill them with ice. Then he forgot all about the matter. But the following June, when the cook, wishing to make some ice cream as a glad surprise for the Sunday dinner, opened the natural ice chest, she found only a pool of muddy water, and exclaimed, Botheration! Then they had custard instead of ice cream. We walked up the steps, and my friend let the brass knocker drop just once, for only Americans give a rat-a-tat-tat, and the door was opened by a white-whiskered butler, who took our cards and ushered us into the library. My heart beat a trifle fast as I took inventory of the room, for I never before had called on a man who was believed to have refused the poet laureateship. A dimly lighted room was this library walls painted brown, running up to mellow yellow at the ceiling, high bookshelves, with a step ladder, and only five pictures on the walls, and of these three were etchings, and two watercolors of a very simple sort, leather-covered chairs, a long table in the center on which were strewn sundry magazines and papers, also several photographs, and at one end of the room a big fireplace, where a log smoldered. Here my inventory was cut short by a cheery voice behind, Ah, now, gentlemen, I am glad to see you. There was no time nor necessity for a formal introduction. The great man took my hand as if he had always known me, as perhaps he thought he had. Then he greeted my friend in the same way, stirred up the fire for it was a North of England summer day, and took a seat by the table. We were all silent for a space of silence without embarrassment. You are looking at the etching over the fireplace it was sent to me by a young lady in America, said Mr. Ruskin, and I placed it there to get acquainted with it. I like it more and more. Do you know the scene? I knew the scene and explained somewhat about it. Mr. Ruskin has the faculty of making his interviewer do most of the talking. He is a rare listener and leans forward, putting a hand behind his right ear to get each word you say. He was particularly interested in the industrial conditions of America, and I soon found myself occupying the time, while an occasional word of interrogation from Mr. Ruskin gave me no chance to stop. I came to hear him, not to defend our Republican experiment, as he was pleased to call the United States of America, yet Mr. Ruskin was so gentle and respectful in his manner and so complimentary in his attitude of listener, that my impatience at his want of sympathy for our experiment only caused me to feel a little heated. The fact of women being elected to mayoralties in Kansas makes me think of certain African tribes that exalt their women into warriors. You want your women to fight your political battles. You evidently hold the same opinion on the subject of equal rights that you expressed some years ago, interposed my companion. What did I say really I have forgotten? You replied to a correspondent, saying, You are certainly right as to my views respecting the female franchise. So far from wishing to give votes to women, I would fain take them away from most men. Surely that was a sensible answer. My respect for woman is too great to force on her increased responsibilities. Then as for restricting the franchise with men, I am of the firm conviction that no man should be allowed to vote who does not own property or who cannot do considerably more than read and write. The voter makes the laws, and why should the laws regulating the holding of property be made by a man who has no interest in property beyond a covetous desire, or why should he legislate on education when he possesses none? Then again, 
Women do not bear arms to protect the state. But what do you say to Mrs. Carlock? Who answers that inasmuch as men do not bear children, they have no right to vote, going to war possibly being necessary and possibly not. But the perpetuity of the state demanding that someone bear children, the lady's argument is ingenious, but lacks force when we consider that the bearing of arms is a matter relating to statecraft, while the baby question is Dame Nature's own, and is not to be regulated even by the sovereign. Then Mr. Ruskin talked for nearly fifteen minutes on the duty of the state to the individual talked very deliberately, but with the clearness and force of a man who believes what he says and says what he believes. Thus, my friend, by a gentle thrust under the fifth rib of Mr. Ruskin's logic, caused him to come to the rescue of his previously expressed opinions, and we had the satisfaction of hearing him discourse earnestly and eloquently. Maiden ladies usually have an opinion ready on the subject of masculine methods, and, conversely, much of the world's logic on the woman question has come from the bachelor brain. Mr. Ruskin went quite out of his way on several occasions in times past to attack John Stuart Mill for heresy in opening up careers for women other than that of wife and mother. When Mill did not answer Mr. Ruskin's newspaper letters, the author of Sesame and Lilies called him a Crete news wretch and referred to him as the man of no imagination. Mr. Mill may have been a Crete news wretch I do not exactly understand the phrase, but the preface to On Liberty is at once the tenderest highest and most sincere compliment paid to a woman, of which I know. The life of Mr. and Mrs. John Stuart Mill shows that perfect mating is possible, yet Mr. Ruskin has only scorn for the opinions of Mr. Mill on a subject which Mill came as near personally solving in a matrimonial experiment as any other public man of modern times, not excepting even Robert Browning. Therefore we might suppose Mr. Mill entitled to speak on the woman question, and I intimated as much to Mr. Ruskin. He might know all about one woman, and if he should regard her as a sample of all womankind, would he not make a great mistake? I was silenced. In Furs Clavigera, Letter Ilix, the author says, I never wrote a letter in my life which all the world is not welcome to read. From this one might imagine that Mr. Ruskin never loved no pressed flowers in books, no passages of poetry double-marked and scored, no bundles of letters faded and yellow, sacred for his own eye tied with white or dainty blue ribbon, no little nothings hidden away in the bottom of a trunk, and yet Mr. Ruskin has his ideas on the woman question, and very positive ideas they are too often sweetly sympathetic and wisely helpful, I see that one of the encyclopedias mentions Ruskin as a bachelor, which is giving rather an extended meaning to the word, for although Mr. Ruskin married, he was not mated, according to Collingwood's account, this marriage was a quiet arrangement between parents, anyway, the genius is like the profligate in this, when he marries he generally makes a woman miserable, and misery is reactionary as well as infectious. Ruskin is a genius. Genius is unique. No satisfactory analysis of it has yet been given. We know a few of its indications that's all. First among these is ability to concentrate. No seed can sow genius, no soil can grow it, its quality is inborn and defies both cultivation and extermination. To be surpassed is never pleasant. To feel your inferiority is to feel a pang. Seldom is there a person great enough to find satisfaction in the success of a friend. The pleasure that excellence gives is oft tainted by resentment, and so the woman who marries a genius is usually unhappy. Genius is excess, it is obstructive to little plans. It is difficult to warm yourself at a conflagration, the tempest may blow you away, the sun dazzles, lightning seldom strikes gently, 
the Nile overflows. Genius has its times of straying off into the infinite and then what is the good wife to do for companionship? Does she protest, and find fault? It could not be otherwise, for genius is dictatorial without knowing it, obstructive without wishing to be, intolerant and awares, and insocial because it cannot help it. The wife of a genius sometimes takes his fits of abstraction for stupidity, and having the man's interests at heart she endeavors to arouse him from his lethargy by chiding him. Occasionally he arouses enough to chide back, and so it has become an axiom that genius is not domestic. A short period of mismatted life told the wife of Ruskin their mistake, and she told him. But Mrs. Grundy was at the keyhole, ready to tell the world, and so Mr. and Mrs. Ruskin sought to deceive society by pretending to live together. They kept up this appearance for six sorrowful years. And then the lady simplified the situation by packing her trunks and deliberately leaving her genius to his chimeras, her soul doubtless softened by the knowledge that she was bestowing a benefit on him by going away. The lady afterwards became the happy wife and helpmate of a great artist. Ruskin's father was a prosperous importer of wines. He left his son a fortune equal to a little more than one million dollars. But that vast fortune has gone principal and interest gone in bequests, gifts and experiments and today Mr. Ruskin has no income save that derived from the sale of his books. Talk about distribution of wealth. Here we have it. The bread and butter question has never troubled John Ruskin except in his ever-ardent desire that others should be fed. His days have been given to study and writing from his very boyhood. He has made money, but he has had no time to save it. He has expressed himself on everything that interests mankind, except perhaps housemaids me. He has written more letters to the newspapers than old subscriber, Thyagisticia, indignant reader, and Veritas, combined. His opinions have carried much weight and directed attention into necessary lines, but perhaps his success as an inspirer of thought lies in the fact that his sense of humor exists only as a trace. As the chemist might say, men who perceive the ridiculous would never have voiced many of the things which he has said. Surely those Sioux Indians who stretched a hay lariat across the Union Pacific Railroad in order to stop the running of trains had small sense of the ridiculous. But it looks as if they were apostles of Ruskin. Everyone. Someone has said that no man can appreciate the beautiful who has not a keen sense of humor. For the beautiful is the harmonious. And the laughable is the absence of fit adjustment. Mr. Ruskin disproves the maxim. But let no hasty soul imagine that John Ruskin's opinions on practical themes are not useful. He brings to bear an energy on every subject he touches and what subject has he not touched, that is sure to make the sparks of thought fly. His independent and fearless attitude awakens from slumber a deal of dozing intellect, and out of this strife of opinion comes truth. On account of Mr. Ruskin's refusing at times to see visitors, reports have gone abroad that his mind was giving way. Not so, for although he is seventy-four he is as serenely stubborn as he ever was. His opposition to new inventions in machinery has not relaxed a single pulley's turn. You grant his premises and in his conclusions you will find that his belt never slips, and that his logic never jumps a cog. His life is as regular and exact as the trains on the Great Western, and his days are more peaceful than ever before. He has regular hours for writing, study, walking, reading, eating, and working out of doors, superintending the cultivation of his hundred acres. He told me that he had not varied a half hour into years from a certain time of going to bed or getting up in the morning. Although his form is bowed, this regularity of life has borne fruit in the rich russet of his complexion, 
the mild, clear-eyed, and the pleasure in living in spite of occasional pain, which you know the man feels, his hair is thick and nearly white, the beard is now worn quite long and gives a patriarchal appearance to the fine face, when we arose to take our leave, Mr. Ruskin took a white felt hat from the elk handlers in the hallway and a stout stick from the corner, and offered to show us a nearer way back to the village, we walked down a footpath through the tall grass to the lake, where he called our attention to various varieties of ferns that he had transplanted there, we shook hands with the old gentleman and thanked him for the pleasure he had given us, he was still examining the ferns when we lifted our hats and bade him good day, he evidently did not hear us, for I heard him mutter, I verily believe those miserable cooks tourists that were down here yesterday picked some of my ferns, William E. Gladstone as the aloe is said to flower only once in a hundred years, so it seems to be but once in a thousand years that nature blossoms into this unrivaled product and produces such a man as we have here. Gladstone. Lecture on Homer, American travelers in England are said to accumulate sometimes large and unique assortments of lisps, drawls and other very peculiar things, of the value of these acquirements as regards their use and beauty. I have not room here to speak. But there is one adjunct which England has that we positively need, and that is, boots. It may be that boots is indigenous to England's soil, and that when transplanted he withers and dies, perhaps there is a quality in our atmosphere that kills him. Anyway, we have no boots. When trouble, adversity or bewilderment comes to the homesick traveler in an American hotel, to whom can he turn for consolation? Alas, the porter is afraid of the guest and all guests are afraid of the clerk, and the proprietor is never seen, and the Afro-Americans in the dining room are stupid, and the chambermaid does not answer the ring, and at last the weary wanderer hies him to the barroom and soon discovers that the word or the barkeep has nothing to recommend him but his diamond pin. How different, yes, how different, this would all be if boots were only here. At the quaint old city of Chester I was met at the station by the boots of that excellent though modest hotel which stands only a block away. Boots picked out my baggage without my looking for it, took me across to the inn, and showed me to the daintiest, most home-like little room I had seen for weeks. On the table was a tastefully decorated jug, evidently just placed there in anticipation of my arrival, and in this jug was a large bunch of gorgeous roses, the morning dew still on them. When Boots had brought me hot water for shaving he disappeared and did not come back until, by the use of telepathy for Boots is always psychic, I had sent him a message that he was needed, in the afternoon he went with me to get a draft cashed, then he identified me at the post office, and introduced me to a dignitary at the cathedral whose courtesy added greatly to my enjoyment of the visit, the next morning after breakfast, when I returned to my room. Everything was put to rights and a fresh bouquet of cut flowers was on the mantel. A good breakfast adds much to one's inward peace. I sat down before the open window and looked out at the great oaks dotting the green meadows that stretched away to the north, and listened to the drowsy tinkle of sheep bells as the sound came floating in on the perfumed breeze. I was thinking how good it was to be here, when the step of boots was heard in the doorway. I turned and saw that my known familiar friend had lost a little of his calm self-reliance in fact. He was a bit agitated, but he soon recovered his breath. Mr. Gladstone and his lady on they just arrived. Sir, they will be here for an hour before taking the train for London. Sir, I told his clerk there was a party of Americans there that were very anxious to meet I am, and he will receive you in the parlor in fifteen minutes. Sir, 
then it was my turn to be agitated. But Boots reassured me by explaining that the grand old man was just the plainest, most unpretentious gentleman one could imagine, that it was not at all necessary that I should change my suit, that I should pronounce it Gladstone, not Gladstone, and that it was Harden, not Howarden. Then he stood me up, looked me over, and declared that I was all right. On going downstairs I found that Boots had gotten together five Americans who happened to be in the hotel. He introduced us to a bright little man who seemed to be the companion or secretary of the Prime Minister. He, in turn, took us into the parlor where Mr. Gladstone sat reading the morning paper, and presented us one by one to the great man. We were each greeted with a pleasant word and a firm grasp of the hand, and then the old gentleman turned and with a courtly flourish said, Gentlemen, allow me to present you to Mrs. Gladstone. Mr. Gladstone was wise, he remained standing. This was sure to shorten the interview. A clergyman in our party who had an impressive cough and bushy whiskers, acted as spokesman, and said several pleasant things, closing his little speech by informing Mr. Gladstone that Americans held him in great esteem, and that we only regretted that fate had not decreed that he should have been born in the United States. Mr. Gladstone replied, Fate is often unkind. Then he asked if we were going to London, on being told that we were. He spoke for five minutes about the things we should see in the metropolis. His style was not conversational, but after the manner of a man who was much used to speaking in public court to receiving delegations, the sentences were stately, the voice rather loud and declamatory. His closing words were, Yes, gentlemen, the way to see London is from the top of a bus from the top of a bus. Gentlemen, then there was an almost imperceptible wave of the hand and we knew that the interview was ended. In a moment we were outside and the door was closed. The five Americans who made up our little company had never met before, but now we were as brothers. We adjourned to a side room to talk it over and tell of the things we intended to say but didn't. We all talked and talked at once, just as people do who have recently preserved an enforced silence. How ill-fitting was that gray suit? Yes, the sleeves too long. Did you notice the absence of the forefinger of his left hand shot off in 1845 while hunting? They say. But how strong his voice is. He looks like a farmer. 85 years of age. Think of it. And how vigorous. Then the preacher spoke and his voice was sorrowful. Oh. But I made a botch of it. Was it sarcasm or was it not? Was what sarcasm? When Mr. Gladstone said that fate was unkind in not having him born in the United States and we were all silent. Then Boots came in and we put the question to Boots, who decided it was not sarcasm. The next day, when we went away, we rewarded Boots bountifully. William Gladstone is England's glory, yet there is no English blood in his veins. His parents were Scotch. Aside from Lord Broom, he is the only Scotchman who has ever taken a prominent part in British statecraft. The name as we first find it is Jaleed Stane. Jaleed, being a hawk literally. A hawk that lives among the stones. Surely the hawk is fully as respectable a bird as the eagle. And a goodly amount of granite in the clay that is used to make a man is no disadvantage. The name fits. There are deep-rooted theories in the minds of many men and still more women that bad boys make good men. And that a dash of the pirate, even in a prelate, does not disqualify. But I wish to come to the defense of the Sunday school storybooks and show that their very prominent moral is right after all. It pays to be good. William Ewart Gladstone was sent to Eton when 12 years of age. From the first, his conduct was a model of propriety, 
he attended every chapel service, and said his prayers in the morning and before going to bed at night, he could repeat the catechism backwards or forwards, and recite more verses of scripture than any other boy in school, he always spoke the truth, he never played hook it, nor, as he grew older, would he tell stories of doubtful flavor, or allow others to relate such in his presence, his influence was for good, and Cardinal Manning has said that there was less wine drunk at Oxford during the 40s than would have been the case if Gladstone had not been there in the 30s. He graduated from Christ Church with the highest possible honors the college could bestow, and at 22 he seemed like one who had sprung into a life full-armed. At that time he had magnificent health, a fine form, vast and varied knowledge, and a command of language so great that he was a master of forensics. His speeches were fully equal to his later splendid efforts. In feature he was handsome, the face bold and masculine, eyes of piercing luster, and hair, which he tossed when in debate, like a lion's mane. He could speak five languages, sing tenor, dance gracefully, and was on more than speaking terms with many of the best and greatest men in England. Besides all this he was rich in British gold. Now. Here is a combination of good things that would send most young men straight to perdition not so Gladstone. He took the best care of his health, systematized his time as a miser might, listened not to the flatterers, and used his money only for good purposes. His intention was to enter the church, but his father said, not yet, and half forced him into politics. So, at this early age of 22, he ran for parliament, was elected and has practically never been out of the shadow of Westminster Palace during these sixty-odd years. At thirty-three, he was a member of the cabinet. At thirty-six, his absolute honesty compelled him for conscience sake to resign from the ministry. His opponents then said, Gladstone is an extinct volcano, and they have said this again and again, but somehow the volcano always breaks out in a new place. Stronger and brighter than ever, it is difficult to subdue a volcano. One twenty-nine. He married Catherine Glynn, sister and heir of Sir Stephen Glynn, baronet. The marriage was most fortunate in every way. For over fifty years this most excellent woman has been his comrade, counselor, consolation, friend his wife. How can any adversity come to him who hath a wife? said Chaucer. If this splendid woman had died, then his opponents might truthfully have said, Gladstone is an extinct volcano, but she is still with him. And a short time ago when he had to undergo an operation for cataract. This woman of 80 was his only nurse. The influence of Gladstone has been of a told value to England. His ideals for national action have been high. To the material prosperity of the country he has added millions upon millions. He has made education popular, and schooling easy. His policy in the main has been such as to command the admiration of the good and great. But there are spots on the sun. On reading Mr. Gladstone's books I find he has vigorously defended certain measures that seem unworthy of his genius. He has palliated human slavery as a necessary evil, has maintained the visibility and divine authority of the Church, has asserted the mathematical certainty of the historic episcopate, the mystical efficacy of the sacraments, and has vindicated the Church of England as the God-appointed guardian of truth. He has thought bitterly any attempt to improve the divorce laws of England. Much has been done in this line, even in spite of his earnest opposition. But we now owe it to Mr. Gladstone that there is on England's law books a statute providing that if a wife leaves her husband he can invoke a magistrate, whose duty it will then be to issue a writ and give it to an officer, who will bring her back. More than this, 
when the officer has returned the woman, the loving husband has the legal right to reprove her. Just what reprove means the courts have not yet determined, for, in a recent decision, when a costermonger admitted having given his lady a taste of the cat, the prisoner was discharged on the ground that it was only needed reproof. I would not complain of this law if it worked both ways, but no wife can demand that the state shall return her man willy-nilly, and if she administers reproof to her mate, she does it without the sanction of the sovereign. However, in justice to Englishmen, it should be stated that while this unique law still stands on the statute books, it is very seldom that a man in recent years has stooped to invoke it. On all the questions I have named, from slavery to divorce, Mr. Gladstone has used the Bible argument, but as the years have gone by, his mind has become liberalized, and on many points where he was before zealous he is now silent. In 1841, he argued with much skill and ingenuity that Jews were not entitled to full rights of citizenship, but in 1847, acknowledging his error, he took the other side. During the War of Secession the sympathies of England's Chancellor of the Exchequer were with the South. Speaking at Newcastle on October 9, 1862, he said, Jefferson Davis has undoubtedly founded a new nation, but five years passed, and he publicly confessed that he was wrong. Here is a man who, if he should err deeply, is yet so great that, like cotton matter, he might not hesitate to stand in cupboard on the street corners and ask the forgiveness of mankind. Such men are saved by their enemies. Their own good and the good of humanity require that their balance of power shall not be too great. Had the North gone down, Gladstone might never have seen his mistake. In this instance and in many others, he has not been the leader of progress, but its echo, truth has been forced upon him. His passionate earnestness, his intense volition, his insensibility to moral perspective, his blindness to the sense of proportion, might have led him into dangerous excess and frightful fanatical error. If it were not for the fact that such men create an opposition that is their salvation, to analyze a character so complex as Mr. Gladstone's requires the grasp of genius. We speak of the duality of the human mind, but here are half a dozen spirits in one. They rule in turn, and occasionally several of them struggle for the mastery. When the Fisk Jubilee Singers visited England, we find Gladstone dropping the affairs of state to hear their music. He invited them to Hawarden, where he sang with them. So impressed was he with the Negro melodies that he anticipated that idea which has since been materialized, the founding of a national school of music that would seek to perfect in a scientific way these soul-stirring strains. He might have made a poet of no mean order, for his devotion to spiritual and physical beauty has made him a lifelong admirer of Homer and Dan.